You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Well, today you have the great privilege to hear Mr. Kyle Bakel bring. Very amazing. So, I'm going to pray for Kyle and for us, and then I'm going to let him take it over. Good evening. All right. Usually I'm used to like speaking down on the floor level because I like to walk around a lot uh, when I speak. And I'm also used to speaking in front of teenagers um, for five to seven minutes. So when Wes asked me to speak on a top on the topic of Shalom, something which we all desire, but have not yet fully uh, experienced or can fully taste. Um, I hesitantly accepted because I knew that this was something that both Carrie and I are very passionate about. Um, and something that is truly a motivator in our life. Um, the word that we will dive into uh, is very rich in its context. And so hopefully you don't get bored with the academic piece. I'm, I like to bring in a lot of scripture. I like to bring in quotes. Um, but I also told some of you that I may go off script. I really don't know. I was telling Wes when we met for coffee a couple weeks ago, I said it could be 10 minutes. It could be 40. Um, so let's just get into it. Um, This is called The Branch from Jesse. It says, is that right? Yeah. There shall come forth uh, up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Dan Allender, in his book, he says, Desire lies at the heart of who God made us to be, who we are at our core. Desire is both our greatest frailty and the mark of our highest beauty. Our desire completes us as we become one with our lover, and it separates us from him and brings death as it wars against his will. Before we go any further, I would just like to pray before diving into our, our message for tonight. Father, thank you for the vision in Isaiah that we see of full flourishing of, of the reign of God being supreme. Where a lion and a lamb can lie down together and where a child can play over the den of a cobra and not be bit. Where there is no war or fighting or tears or death in all your holy land. Because the people are under the banner of God. And the battle cry of heaven is peace. Lord, may we be people who understand peace, who live it out, and who value it um, so that we can invite others to taste 
the shalom of God. The year was December 1914. And just five months earlier, the curtains of war opened, unveiling combat machines that the world had never seen before. Mobs of soldiers marching side by side in traditional fashion were systematically mowed down by machine guns and devoured by hailstorms of artillery fire. Some calculations estimate that over 6,000 people were killed every single day for 1,566 days. If we were to take a 30-second moment of silence for each soldier that fell, there would be nine years of unbroken silence. In order to escape this barrage of military fire and bullets and explosions, men burrowed into the ground. They dug trenches that were hundreds of miles long, zigzag lines across both eastern and western fronts, which we now know as trench warfare. Dan Carlin suggests, imagine yourself going out in your backyard, digging a hole, and living there day after day. Then add decaying bodies and rotting limbs. Flood these trenches with constant rainfall, which would make your boot-wearing feet balloon and ache, known as trench foot, and, the, and where decomposing bodies float to the surface. On top of that, there were rats that were the size of cats, an endemic of fever-spreading body lice, never-ending mud, moans and whimpers for mostly dead men, and a stench that allowed you to smell the front line long before you could see it. And don't forget that there are thousands of men only 100 yards away who were paid to kill you at even any given moment. Here in this cold, wet ground, there lived men, millions of soldiers. A 19-year-old Irish man serving as second lieutenant in the British Army gives one of the most chilling de descriptions of what he observed on the front line. He says this. The frights, the cold, the smell of high explosives, the horribly smashed men still moving like half-crushed beetles, the sitting or standing corpses, the landscape of sheer earth without a blade of grass, the boots worn down and night, the boots worn down day and night till they seem to grow to your feet. That young Irishman was none other than C.S. Lewis, who would become one of the greatest authors and theologians of our time. He was there on the battlefield experiencing hell on earth. He was describing this no man's land where when you looked out, literally no one could live there because if you came up out of your hole, you would be mowed down by bullets. It was a death sentence. It was suicide to pop your head up above that trench. So it's in this context that something absolutely amazing happens. Christmas Eve, 1914. There was a, a freeze that night. Snow glittered the ground and it was completely white, um, which made the earth hard. So instead of mud and rain, it, the earth became hardened. One soldier said it was a beautiful moonlit night with frost on the ground, white almost everywhere. And there was a lot of commotion coming from the German trenches. And then there were thousands of little lights that came above the trenches. He said, I don't know what they are. All of a sudden, there was a song in the night, silent night. He said, I shall never forget it. It was one of the highlights of my life. So in the midst of this battlefield, German soldiers, which I can't do a German accent, nor should I, <laughs> but start singing, still not Nacht, silent night, holy night. They were shouting it out, singing shouts of joy. And all of a sudden they said, Come on, Irishmen. Come on, Englishmen. Sing with us. Participate. 
the Englishmen at first thought that it was a trap to get them uh, to pop their heads up above the trenches. But then the Germans started shouting, if you don't shoot, we will not shoot. So they started singing, silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright, rounding on virgin, mother and child. Emboldened by this song and reciprocated joking, a few men took things further. They requested to meet in the middle of no man's land. They decided to risk their lives to socialize with the enemy. One author says that the Christmas spirit began to conquer the battlefield. After thousands of men gathered the night before, tens of thousands would gather in no man's land on Christmas Day. They did this illegally against the orders of their captains to sing, exchange gifts of cigars and puddings, and talk as best as they could. Nations coming together under the banner of Jesus Christ. One British man gave a German a haircut. Some reportedly raced bikes they found in abandoned houses. They fought ferociously, but this time, instead of with bullets, they fought on the soccer field. It said that in some reports that they actually turned their rifles uh, and tied them together to create goalposts. They were laughing hysterically. There was dancing songs that were played. They also took an opportunity to bury the bodies. They had joint funeral services together. The whole scene was absolutely astounding, said Sir Captain Edward Hulse. And he said, if I had seen it on cinematograph film, I should have sworn it was faked. Another man wrote home to his wife and said, there's nowhere else I would have rather been than on that battlefield that day. He described it as one of the best days of his entire life. So what, what happened on this field? What was it uh, that encaptured these men? I think the simple truth is that their hearts were captured by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The nations lived in harmony together. We see pictures in Isaiah. If you haven't read Isaiah in a while, go and read that book. It talks about a time to come in the later days. And, and in Zion, on my holy hill, it talks about this future state, which will be reality for every single one of us in this room. For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, the days of my people will be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or build children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. I 
it's kind of interesting as they're singing that song of silent nights, they're brought together, their hearts are brought together under this banner of peace. And Luke, when, when the angels are describing uh, chapter two, says suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Charles Spurgeon said that uh, the swaddling band with which he was wrapped up, that's Jesus, was the white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, the treaty between God and man. And it was signed in his blood. Men emptied their wrath. Satan spent his ammo. Christ drank damnation under the doomsday device of the divine. In the no man's land of Calvary, he secured peace by the blood of his cross. Going back to Isaiah, when when we think of that time to come, there's no need, there's no lack, there's no pain or hurting. When our hearts, that quote at the beginning says, when our hearts are connected to its deepest desire, to our creator, the result is shalom. The result is that nothing lacks. The result is that all things are as they ought to be. Instead of men who are warring with weapons, they're now fighting ferociously on a battlefield and dancing and laughing together. But not only that, the the land on which they were on itself became a place of restoration. Where it was just dying bodies and decay and disease, it now becomes a place of joy and beauty and peace. These soldiers of war and death became, if even for a moment, soldiers of the kingdom of heaven. They were living out what it meant to be an image bearer of God, literally to be a reflection, which is to be highly relational, to reflect his glory, to fulfill the creation mandate, to be fruitful in our labor and cultivate the earth. In essence, to be a blessing to their fellow man and to their creator. What these soldiers experience, it's not too far off from what uh, we see in Isaiah when it talks of a later time to come when the Messiah will reign. It says that God will judge among the nations and he'll rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These Old Testament prophets, they dreamed of a new age in which crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their lap. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all human nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean towards God, and delight in God. This idea of human flourishing, that all things as there ought to be, is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. Most of our English Bibles, when we read it today, translate shalom simply as peace, but it's far too weak of an interpretation. Biblical scholars tell us that shalom signifies a number of things, including salvation, wholeness, integrity, soundness, community, connectedness to others and to God's creation. It means righteousness, justice, and well-being. It denotes a right relationship with God, with self, with others, and the rest of creation. Cornelius Plantiga, he says, that shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. 
is what the Hebrew prophets, prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or mind or a ceasefire between enemies. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is mentioned over 250 times in the Bible. Only 10% of the time it's referring to a greeting or a farewell, like where we see in Ezra 4, it says, The king sent this reply to Ram, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Shalom. 25% of the time, it's referring to a state or relationship that is peaceful or free from conflict. And there was peace, shalom, also between Israel and the Amorites. However, 65% of the time, shalom refers to completeness, maturity, and overall well-being, economically, relationally, and physically. We're going to talk a little bit here um, where, let me just skip this because I want to go to this. I want to look at... um, the radical nature of shalom in in scripture. But in order to do that, I want to set the context of of, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. If I can get there. Okay, but first, so here's the the, the context behind this verse. I want you to picture a vast tent city on the edge of the greatest metropolis in the world. The refugees who live there have been forced from their homeland by an invading army. They have seen their city sacked, their families murdered, and their sacred place of worship destroyed. The exiles have lost everything that was important to them. Their future is uncertain, and each day is clouded with ambiguity, with little meaning or purpose beyond survival. They wait day after day, hoping they will awaken from the nightmare that has become their life. This is the 5th century BC. The city is the great city of Babylon, the capital of the ancient empire ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the exiles there are the best and brightest of what had been Israel. Historically, Nebuchadnezzar had a unique strategy for keeping countries that he conquered from rising up against him. He would round up all the leaders, particularly the finest and brightest young men and women, and take them back to Babylon. Unlike many others of his rulers of his time, he did not enslave them, but wanted to assimilate them into the culture of Babylon. But these Israelite captives refused to assimilate. Instead, they camp together in the outskirts of the city. False prophets in the camp tell the exiles not to go down into the city of Babylon, that God was planning to raise up an army that would come and deliver them from the Babylonians. So they wait there on the edge of the city. When all of a sudden, one day, a letter to the exiles in Babylon comes from their homeland. It's from the prophet Jeremiah who was left behind. And this letter radically changes the Jewish people's perception of how they should live in an exiled land. And it says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and really hard words here, 
Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. I'll I'll leave off the last verse. So think about this. You're in exile in a nation that has just murdered your family, taken you from your home, and false prophets are talking to you and say, hey, just wait. God's going to come back. He's going to raise up for his people an army to conquer Babylon. And then all of a sudden, Jeremiah sends a letter to you that says, hey, plant homes or build homes, plant gardens, have children, marry. He's literally telling them, be present in the city. Move from the outskirts and move into the town. He says, establish a presence because you are going to be here for the long haul. Later on in those verses, it talks about how they will be there for a minimum of 70 years before God will come back for his people. One of the most famous verses that often gets taken out of context is Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That verse is written in the midst of this context here. What I love about this uh, passage from Jeremiah is that we too, like the Israelites, live in an exiled land. We live in a culture that is not sympathetic to Christianity. Culturally, it might give lip service to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we live in an exiled land where Satan is fighting against us day after day after day to take us away from understanding the King. But yet here, God is telling his people, establish my presence in the city. Multiply there, put down roots, be neighbors with your enemies. This this practice of presence is one of the easiest ways that we can live out the shalom of God. And it's exactly what we see Jesus do when he comes to us. When we practice presence, we are imitating Jesus. Jesus saved the world by becoming present in it. In John, it says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. From the message version, it interprets that. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. J.B. Phillips puts it this way. says, so the word of God became a human being and lived among us. Jesus is not a long distance saver. He becomes present in the world he wants to save. In Mark, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, every time when we see that, it's synonymous with shalom. So he's he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a, a shepherd. Jesus becomes present in our world for a purpose. 
He preaches the whole gospel. He wants to bring physical healing, and he wants to see people restored to right relationship with God. He's preaching a ministry of shalom where he's making all things right. And I think that as his image bearers, as his, as his children, we are also called into this ministry of shalom. What Oakwood Lincoln Park needs, what Knoxville needs is neighborhoods and people who are willing to commit to a long-term relational presence in our city. This means listening. This means waiting on God. It means watching and joining in with whatever God is already doing in the neighborhood. Austrian philosopher Ivan Illich, he says this, he says, when asked about the most revolutionary way to change society, he says, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so pervasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. As Christians, we are called to live a life so transformed by this alternative story that others glimpse in it the possibility of their own transformation in the worlds. We're told to live question questionable lives that when people see our work our practice our interactions our thoughts our deeds that they say who is this person that you serve and why do you live the way that you do the way in which we live our lives should be a trailer uh, for almost as if it's a movie for the kingdom of god so that when people are around us they can taste shalom they can smell shalom they can see it lived out practically which leads me to one of my next points, which, sorry for all this scripture, I just think this is really important to see this. <laughs> yeah, for real, that's right. But how, how do we do this practically, right? How do we actually start to reweave shalom? Because we know that it has been broken, that the fabrics of what God has created is no longer the reality that we experience. We know that. We feel it day after day. So how do we do this practically? So one of the exiles was Daniel. And the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that whole story. But here's what he does. When Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites, he took specifically uh, Daniel and three others with him and said that he was going to put them in training for three years. And ultimately what he's seeking to do is to change Daniel's entire identity, to obliterate any remnant uh, within Daniel and his friends that they were the people of God. And it says that they were invited to eat at his table alongside him. But then in Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Okay, this is a really weird passage to look at when we're talking about what does it look like to practically live out shalom. But what I want us to recognize here um, is that something so trivial as eating food was a way that Daniel could resist the culture that he was placed into. It was a kingdom uh, act, sort of activism on his part. And while it might seem a small thing, that is exactly the point, for it's in the small matters that great victories are won. This is where decisions to live a holy life are made, not in the big things, but in the details of life. Notice, too, that in that first verse, if we go back, eh, how do you go back, Wes? Where it says, but Daniel resolved, which means he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He made a decision before God that he was going to be obedient no matter what the cost was. So why is this important for shalom living, right? Even in the small things. We have to consider how the enemy operates while we're living in an exile land. The world around us wants to squeeze us into its mold and it uses every means possible to get us to forget our spiritual roots and to adopt the mindset, values, and worldview of the surrounding culture. We are in the world, but we are not to be of it. Um, recall that Daniel and his three friends spent a full three years being immersed in Babylonian culture, beliefs, and practices. At the end of this three-year initiation process, with their previous identity fully obliterated, they would enter the service of Nebuchadnezzar. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is that his whole goal for his procedure is that in, in one way or another to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and the minds of these young men and to instill in them a sense of total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. We have to recognize that because that's still how Satan operates today. While he may violently persecute believers in some parts of the world, yet often he works more effectively by seducing and deceiving us into forgetting God and thinking what our blessings, that our blessings come from somewhere else. So we have to purpose in our heart and to resist over and over again the culture's temptations to draw us in. Something that I do, and you've probably heard me say to you in small groups um, before, if you've been with me, um, one of my acts of, of activism or cultural defiance is I ask the question, where are you at work and how do I join you? Every day I ask myself that question. When I get up, when I'm uh, in my office, when I'm working with children, I just say, God, where are you at work and how can I join you? It's a simple phrase, but it's a great reminder to recenter myself back into the grand narrative of God's story. It allows me to look up and to see where the Spirit of God is moving in and around those whom I interact with, specifically those not experiencing the shalom of God. It reminds me that we are to good news others through our thoughts, words, and deeds. And it's also just a great reminder to stop, observe, and listen to where God might be calling me, which is in essence the point of prayer. 
where we say your will be done and not mine. Just a quick note to the listeners, Kyle walked off the podium at this point to stand in front of the congregation, and so we've increased his volume on the next clip, but you may want to pause and increase the volume on your personal listening device as well. I'm not really sure why Wes maybe asked me to talk on this today. Um, I think he knows that or maybe has seen that Gary's life has been pretty messy recently, especially over the last few years. Uh, Shalom is hard. It's really hard. Um, In fact, if it probably worked for my wife, I probably wouldn't say yes to a lot of things that she's asked me to do. So four years ago, when a single mother who was seven months pregnant and had a one and a half year old child asked to move into our home, Carrie said yes without really even thinking. Not that she wasn't thinking, but she lives a life of shalom where she embraces brokenness, where she embraces pain. It was a very small thing for her to just say yes and for her to be faithful to that. But I don't think we understood how saying yes to that and faithful to that was going to radically change our lives and the lives of others around us. Over the last 40 years, we specifically has experienced oppression in a way that I've never experienced before. There's been frustrations that I've never experienced before. Long nights of crying and tears and not knowing where our children are going to be, whose home they're going to be in. But of that, I've also started to taste and to see small glimpses of shalom. I've seen two young children who smile and laugh and are silly and love to make other people smile. I've seen friends who didn't understand brokenness be brought into our story as well and start to understand other people's cultures. Um, I've seen a church rally around us and exercise faith in a way that I didn't really know was possible. And so, while shalom is messy, um, I just want to remind us of this before we go. That it's not a wasted effort. Um, that, that our... <laughs> it's not a wasted effort um, because we have to... Ah, sorry. I don't know why I didn't show that at all. What's that passing up on this week? Come on, Blaine. Come on, Gary. Is in your slide? It could be not. Basically, it's that one passage where it talks about where uh, all of creation is is growing and and is yearning uh, to be restored back to its creator. Right, um, which can be summed up with what Kuiper says here: says there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, "Mine." And so I just wanted to like leave us with this reminder that the entire world, every person we interact with, every citizen that we're part of our jobs, they all belong to Christ, and long to be restored to his deepest desire, which is to know the love of the Father. And so as we go, 
as we live out lives of shalom, be reminded of this in John chapter 20, where the disciples are literally hiding the fears after the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. He's praying to Shalom for them. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Every person that we interact with, uh, because we have been breathed in uh, by Jesus with his spirit, we carry the peace of God with us wherever we go. Um, it's a lot the, the shalom story. It's hard and we won't fully get a glimpse of it until Christ comes back. Just realize that you carry the peace of God with you, that you have been commissioned to go out and to create and to cultivate shalom. All right, thanks for bearing with me as I fall through all my notes. Um, let's start. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.